And if you will follow along as I read, beginning in verse 6, down through verse 13. Ruth chapter 3, verse 6, down through verse 13. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. And Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. So spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Then he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So now, my daughter, do not fear. All that you say, I will do for you. For all of my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. But now it is true, I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Stay this night, and it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, Then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. To turn the events of the book of Ruth into a wild and romantic love story destroys God's purpose and strips it a very significant meaning. There is a deep theological significance in this book that is often lost by romanticizing its narrative. What is this book? What is it really? What is Ruth all about? Why is it tucked in here between Judges and 1 Samuel? Why do we have this in our corpus of literature? And one of the only two books in the entire Bible that's named after a woman. Why is this here? Well, I want you to understand the book of Ruth in short fashion here is a remarkable story on how Yahweh in his powerful providence graciously redeems a young pagan Moabite Gentile woman by the name of Ruth and brings her under the protective graces of the Mosaic covenant, making her a part of the Israelite covenant family and a critical link in the lineage of the Messiah which we know later to be the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, later on in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, she's one of the very few women listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You understand that Hebrew tradition was not fond of listing women as a part of the genealogies, and yet Ruth as a Moabitess is listed there. It does serve to indicate how important this young Moabite woman is to salvation history. Understanding the customs of ancient Israel and the animosity that the Israelites had for the Moabites uh, 
No one would ever have guessed back then that Yahweh would pour out his elective graces on a young Moabite girl and so change her heart that she becomes this devoted follower willing to put her life on the line in order to serve his purposes. No one would have ever guessed that back then. There's a certain biblical truth here that I think is really critical. And oftentimes we read over it, but it reoccurs over and over and over again in Scripture. The biblical truth is as old as time. And it's this, it's simply this. Obedience to God always brings eventual joy and blessing. Obedience to God always brings eventual joy and blessing. Make no mistake about that. No matter how difficult the obedience may be, it always brings eventual joy and blessing. I mean, this is exactly what God said to Cain, wasn't it? When he said, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's always that choice. There's always that decision that needs to be made. Am I going to obey God in this or am I going to disobey God in this? And God says, if you obey me, then there's going to be joy and blessing in that. But if you disobey me, there are going to be consequences. In fact, Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 just for a moment, and you can see this. Now, this is very significant because this actually occurs just a couple of chapters after what we're really interested in today, back in Deuteronomy 25. But right now, in Deuteronomy 28, God makes this promise. Verse 1, he says, Now it will be, if you diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God, Being careful to do all his commandments, which I am commanding you today, Yahweh, your God, will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be the offering of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh shall cause your enemies to rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. Yahweh will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you send forth your hand to do, and he will bless you in the land which Yahweh, your God, gives you. Yahweh will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of Yahweh, your God, and walk in his ways, so all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of Yahweh, and they will be afraid of you. And Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground and in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give you. Yahweh will open for you his good storehouse the heavens to give you rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And Yahweh 
will make you the head and not the tail. And you only will be above and you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of Yahweh, your God, which I am commanding you today to keep and to do, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I am commanding you today to the right or to the left to walk after other gods to serve them. So in those 14 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 28, God reiterates the fact that if you listen to his voice, if you follow his commands, if you are willing to obey him, then God will make sure all kinds of blessings will rest upon you. Now, that's not prosperity gospel. It's not what that's mean. Prosperity gospel basically says you give a certain amount of money to this particular ministry and then uh, all kinds of blessings will rest upon you. No, No, that's not it at all. What this is, is it's talking about the fact that there is always joy and there is always blessing in obedience to the Lord. Jesus said this in Matthew 7 and verse 24, therefore, he who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. So not just to hear the word of God, but to actually do them is like a man who establishes his life like building a house on a rock, not on sand. Or Luke 11 and verse 28. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. John 13, 17, there, when Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, he turned to them and said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And then later on, James In James chapter 1 and verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. Do you get this idea, right? That obedience to God always brings eventual joy and blessing. Now, sometimes you may have to go through a difficult time, and that difficult time may go on for an extended amount of time, but you still choose to obey God during that particular difficult time of hardship, God promises that kind of blessing. Ruth understands this vital truth in the believer's life. Obedience to the Lord brings joy. Such an important principle is lost to this generation because discouragement, discontentment, depression characterizes the lives of so many people today. You know that. They've lost the simple truth that obedience to the Lord brings joy. In in every area where you disobey God, you set yourself up for unhappiness in life. Do you understand? In every area. Now, as the events of Ruth chapter 3 unfold, it's clear that Naomi is discipling and counseling Ruth in the ways of the Levitical law. This is part that's often missed by the time we get to chapter 3. The romanticizing of this particular text misses this. Naomi is discipling and counseling Ruth in the ways of Levitical law. The Old Testament law was always an expression of the love that God had for his people. Why? It's there to provide for them, and it's there to protect them. That's for the purpose of the Old Testament law. Naomi understands this, and in her love now for Ruth, 
she schools her on how the Old Testament law can be can be used potentially to help them in their situation. But Ruth would need to implicitly trust the procedures of the law and Naomi's understanding of Israelite customs in order for Naomi's strategy to work. The portion of the law that Naomi is using describes the responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer. Now, we can't avoid overlooking this. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, and take a look at verse 5. Here is that portion of the law in the second giving of the law here, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, where God says, if brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son then the wife of the one who died shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, at this particular point, you're probably saying, okay, now why is this so significant? Well, he explains himself. Verse 6, And it will be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take the brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise a name, up a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of the husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he stands and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and shall pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and, and say, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and in Israel, his name shall be called the house of whom, whose sandal is removed. Wow. There's the law of the kinsman redeemer. We need to bring back some practices like this. <laughs> All right. This is amazing. All right. So now this gives you a little bit of background understanding of why the events are unfolding the way they are in Ruth chapter 3. The text here can be divided into three points here. The first point is Ruth's subjection, that is to the law and to Naomi in verses 6 and 7. The second point has to do with Ruth's submission, that is to the law and to Boaz in verses 8 through 11. And the third part is Ruth's stay. That is, awaiting the right kinsman redeemer. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite woman reading this account for the very first time, this part of the story would be the most dramatic and scary part of it to you. Ruth 3. Up to this point, Boaz has shown unusual kindness to Ruth and Naomi, but that could easily change in an instant. This shameless approach of Ruth of soliciting marriage from Boaz could easily, by custom, get ugly. 
He could easily assume that they're trying to take advantage of his previous kindness. Or he could have had a change of mind. After all, she is a Moabite. Or Boaz might assume that he's too old for her and decide to take her, take, and not to take on this huge responsibility of being her husband. There's no command in the Levitical law that forces him to be a kinsman redeemer. He's left to choose. We saw that Deuteronomy 25. So put yourself in Ruth's sandals. Hmm. She knows she's doing the right thing by the law, but this is very uncomfortable. She's even nervous about what could happen. But she's highly motivated to obey the Mosaic law and leave the outcome in the hands of Yahweh. So let's take a look at this, and we'll take a look at Ruth's subjection. Chief among Ruth's most admirable qualities is her desire to do the right thing no matter how difficult or risky it may be. That is one of her chief qualities. She was a woman of great faith in the Lord. You can see her willingness to obey Naomi's command in verse 6 and her patient obedience in verse 7. So she is, as a woman like this, selflessly uncoerced. There is a genuine willingness on Ruth's part to execute Naomi's strategy to the last detail because she knew it was driven by scriptural counsel. She doesn't have to be coerced or forced or cajoled in order to do it. Even though it's risky, her actions could easily have been misinterpreted, and there are many things that could go horribly wrong for her here. But nevertheless, Ruth went to the threshing floor as commanded, and that's the term that's used in the Hebrew here, as commanded by Naomi. Naomi commands her to go there, not based upon her authority as her mother-in-law, but based upon the authority of the law. That's where the command comes. So the Hebrew language is, is clear at this point that she went down. That's the idea. She went down to the threshing floor, possibly referring to a valley area where the grain was taken and where a stiff breeze would rush through the valley to blow the chaff away. It was a low part of the valley just outside the city. Now, if you've ever been to Bethlehem, my wife and I were there a few years ago. If you've ever been to the city of Bethlehem was part of the hill country of Judea and still is today. It was built on the side of a hill and terraced down into a valley. So Ruth and Naomi lived in the higher section of the city and had to walk down to the threshing floor. So it made sense to have the threshing floor at the low part of the city, which helped the rest of the city. Uh, to be up and above all the continual dust and the chaff that stirred up, especially during the harvest time. So it's down in the valley that the threshing floors occurred. However, 
It's somewhat strange that Naomi, remember in our last message, we talked about this, would require Ruth to wash herself, anoint herself, put on her best clothes, and then proceed to the filthiest part of the city. (laughs) But that is where Boaz was supposed to be, and Ruth needed to act quickly. So Ruth now followed all of Naomi's instructions as commanded. You can see that at the end of verse 6. And you've got to remember that Ruth is mostly ignorant as to the proper customs of the Israelites as well as the Leverite law of the kinsman redeemer. So she is totally dependent upon Naomi's counsel if she's going to get this right. So if Ruth changed anything in her approach to Boaz, she could easily doom their chances. There was a proper way to do this and there was an improper way. And if she tried to enact the proposal based upon her Moabite upbringing, Boaz could easily be insulted and refuse to become a kinsman redeemer. So the second half of verse 6 is very clear. Ruth carefully followed all the instructions her mother-in-law had given her. She carried out every detail of Naomi's plans and her course of action. Ruth left nothing to chance or to misunderstanding. Now, many daughter-in-laws today would resent the copious commands of their mother-in-law, thinking that she's treating me like a child. Well, Ruth shows none of this. She subjects herself to every last detail, which really brings us to verse 7, where it says, And Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, this is a strange verse to us, but let me explain it to you. There was this secret uncovering, all right? Secretly uncovering of his feet. Verse 7 gives you a practical illustration on how careful Ruth is in following Naomi's command. She understood their entire future hung on what would happen in the next few hours. So her desire was to see a successful outcome and all of this pulsed into her thinking. Um, and it would be easily easy with most people when that situation occurred for something like this to become incredibly impulsive for someone to become impulsive. And so I'm, I'm sure that there was a natural desire in her that to press this matter quickly, but she resists that temptation. Um, As the Apostle Paul admonishes uh, the believers at Colossae in Colossians 3.12, so as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here you see Ruth's patience. Um. You can see Ruth's self-restraint. She refuses to allow instinctual urges to control the day. Instead, as Ruth was counseled by Naomi, she patiently waits. So Ruth waited patiently for Boaz to lie down as commanded. Now, it is more difficult to see in the English translation of the Bible, but the words here, his heart was merry, and the words, he went to lie down, 
is the same wording up in chapter 3 and verse 1 translated a little bit differently. When Naomi wants Ruth to be at rest, to lie down, um, or security, and that it may be well with her. So Ruth is willing to patiently wait until the right time. Right timing is everything, right? It is. You, you may know the right thing to do, but is it good timing to do it, right? Is it the right time to do it? Proverbs 15, verse 23 says, A man has gladness and an apt answer, and how good is a timely word. Timely word. Sometimes you can say the right thing at the wrong time. Having the wisdom to know not just what to say, but when to say it, often is lacking in conversations today. Waiting for the proper time was a specific instruction Naomi had given Ruth. She must not act until then. There's a true story, by the way, that I was reminded of when I was preparing this sermon of a badly timed marriage proposal. A guy wanted to propose to his girlfriend at Disney World, which was very common, usually in front of the castle with the staff involved for pictures and stuff. But no, this genius, this man of men, (laughs) decided he had to step it up a notch and he decides to go to Splash Mountain (laughs) at the very peak right before the drop and he drops the ring. (laughs) Timing is everything. Timing is everything. So if this plan is really going to work, Ruth had to do this at the right time. A miscalculation here could ruin the whole thing. Boaz had to be satisfied from his evening meal. He needed to be merry. The Hebrew word there is an interesting word, yatov, which actually means he had to feel good. <laughs> lying, he had to be, feel good, lying down to rest. In other words, If Boaz missed dinner or was unhappy or somehow was disturbed or anxious and he couldn't rest, then it was not good timing to present this proposal. Naomi is teaching Ruth how to properly read the room. In this case, properly read the groom. (laughs) All right. How do you properly read the groom? You thought that was funny, didn't you? So, so what should I'm, I'm I'm dying because my wife's laughing up here. So what should she do if Boaz was not in a good mood or relaxed? Well, the last half of verse seven tells you. You can see it there in verse seven. Ruth now enacted the condition of the marriage proposal as commanded. Sorry. So. Um, He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and laid down. Um, So this may seem strange to you, but the ancient Hebraic custom had a lot of significance in it. Ruth was to quietly, somewhat surreptitiously, uncover Boaz's feet, lie down just below them without disturbing him, This is a part of the plan that could have 
uh, could be done, had to be done very carefully so she doesn't disturb him or wake him up. Now, it seems odd, but you've got to understand that if an Old Testament Israelite were to observe some of our marriage customs today, you know, they would think that we're really strange. I had a college friend in college who proposed to his wife, took her out on the middle of an active Air Force runway, and said, we're not leaving until you say yes. (laughs) She said yes. The ancient Israelites would think, you're nuts. All right. Well, some of their customs are different. All right. Than ours. But they really have a lot of significance to them. What did Ruth's reclining at his feet mean in those days? That's the interpretive question, right? It meant she was offering herself to be his wife by placing herself under his feet, graphically demonstrating to him that she was willing to come under his authority and become a permanent member of his household. To the contemporary mind trained in current feminism, this is repulsive, (laughs) but to the godly mind trained in biblical virtue, it's remarkable. So Ruth subjects herself to the wisdom of Naomi, uncovers Boaz's feet, lies down below them. What a resilient symbol of humility, grace, and trust in Yahweh. Which brings out, really, her submission. Verses 8 through 11. When you look at verse 8, and verse 8 says, Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled, and he bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. So a few hours pass. Ruth is still waiting at his feet, probably unable to sleep. This is a huge step for her, and her anxious thoughts are racing. Suddenly, Boaz stirs in the middle of the night, startled by something, probably his cold feet. (laughs) The Hebrew text implies that he was resting with his back up against, sort of in a sitting position, leaning back, but in sitting back up against his pile of grain, So he leans forward and sees a woman lying at his feet. Now, if Boaz is anything like me, having awakened from a deep sleep, it takes a little while for my mind as well as my vision to clear. What is going on? And who is this? All right. So as Boaz attempted to focus his thoughts, the reality of what this meant was beginning to dawn on him. No one would make this gesture unless they were submitting themselves to him in a formal proposal. Eventually, he understood the meaning. Ruth solicited this marriage proposal from a position of submission. She has purposely placed herself at the feet of Boaz. It's a deliberate act to let him know that she's placing herself under his authority as a husband, and essentially she is surrendering her life to his. Not because she believed that he was always going to do the right thing by her, not because she saw him as perfect, no, despite the fact that she knew that he was imperfect being, but she trusted Yahweh with whatever was going to happen in her future. That was such the key. Any woman who does this, 
must trust God to overrule the imperfections and failures of her husband for the good. That was Ruth's attitude. The depth of her absolute trust in Yahweh is unmistakable here. Now look at verse 9. Then he said, who are you? It was still dark. He couldn't see her. She was unmistakably a woman, but exactly what woman is making this audacious proposal? He understood what it meant. She immediately identifies herself as Ruth, but not just Ruth. She describes herself as his maidservant. That's the way the LSB translates it. The word there simply means female slave. I'm your female slave. And in one sense, she already acknowledges that she belongs to him, just not as his wife. So Ruth solicited this marriage proposal shamelessly in keeping with the Mosaic law. Ruth righteously solicited this proposal and this marriage covenant because it was in line with exactly what the Levitical law taught. And Naomi had taught her the law. Naomi's counseling relationship with Ruth is an example of Titus 2, 3 through 5 at work, where Paul says to Titus, he says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may instruct the young women in in sensibility, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be slandered. Long before that was ever written, Ruth was already working out the idea of that text. Long before. And this is what Naomi had taught Ruth to model and to keep in upholding the law of the kinsman redeemer. Now, there are a lot of young women today who desire to be a wife, but they don't want to be take on the biblical responsibilities of being a wife. They want to define the terms on what that means, what it means to be a wife. They reject the way that God defines a wife and then wonder why their marriages are so weak and miserable and unhappy. By contrast, Ruth trusted God's word to define what it means to be a wife. She saw herself as a woman under authority of her husband. She placed herself at his feet. And notice how she communicates her submission. Ruth does this by using the very words that Boaz had said in his prayer back in chapter 2 and verse 12. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 12, where it says, it says, Boaz is praying here. It says, may Yahweh fully repay your work, and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That's when he was talking to her. She remembers this. And now she turns around and uses this. Now you can see in uh, in verse 9 where she says, I am Ruth, your female slave, your maidservant, So spread your wing over your maidservant or female slave, for you are a kinsman redeemer. She uses his words. So that's quite remarkable. 
Uh, she knew she, she was keeping the law, and she knew that Boaz had previously prayed for something like this to happen. So she was bold and confident in making the marriage proposal, but she was still not sure what the outcome would be. She's requesting that he take on this important role of being her kinsman redeemer. She was asking him to assume, really, a huge responsibility. Exactly how would Boaz take this? She knew that he did not have to agree to be her kinsman redeemer. He could choose to immediately turn her down, and then there would be no recourse left for her. So there was a little bit of this that was where she was sheeplessly unsure. Boaz responds and refers to her as a woman of excellence. The Hebrew word here for excellence means extremely valuable, unique. And it's the same word that is used in Proverbs 31.10 in describing the virtuous woman, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above pearls. So what are the character qualities that Boaz saw in her? I want to highlight seven of them. As I studied the test and reviewed it and reviewed it and reviewed it, I boiled it down to seven key things that he acknowledges in relationship to her. What are they that he saw in her? First of all, Ruth had left her family, her birth family, gods and country. For any marriage to really work, it always involves a leaving of a spouse birth family, as described in Genesis 2.24. For Ruth, leaving her family also meant leaving behind her pagan worship, leaving behind her ethnic heritage, leaving behind her siblings, leaving behind her friends. And first, she did this to follow her first husband, Malone, And after she became a young widow, she did this in order to follow her bitter mother-in-law. Most women would never make a sacrifice like that, and especially to live in a foreign country. This is something that deeply impressed Boaz. He had heard her story. He talks about it back in chapter 2 and verse 11, where he says, and he replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you forsake your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. That's a polite way of saying that, but came to a people, he could have said, that were your enemies. Wow. She had done that. Second thing is that Ruth had cared for her mother-in-law. As we've seen before, Ruth has taken the precarious and perilous journey with Naomi to Bethlehem for Moab. She also lets her mother-in-law know clearly that she's going to stay with her by her side, not forsake her. She will even die with her. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, she talks about this. She says, do not Press me to forsake you in turning back, Ruth says to Naomi, from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. 
Thus, may Yahweh do to me and more if anything but death separates you and me. Wow, that's a vow. That's a very serious vow. So she even goes to acquire food from the harvest fields at great personal risk of being pounced upon by angry Israelites or by men who want to take advantage of her. Boaz could see Ruth was a woman who was loyal to her word. As Psalm 15.4, later on, her great-grandson writes, a righteous person swears to his own hurt and does not change. That was Ruth. But even on top of all of that, I believe that Boaz realized that Ruth's care for Naomi was seen in how she valued and followed Naomi's wisdom. Ruth trusted Naomi to give her the good counsel, and she executed that counsel judiciously. He, he knew what Ruth was doing could potentially backfire, but she was willing to do it because it was Naomi's will. So Ruth cared for her mother-in-law. Thirdly, Ruth also had worked hard in the harvest field. As a young woman, Ruth, I am sure, she was very aware of the importance of remaining attractive should another potential husband come her way. Nevertheless, that did not stop her from getting dirty and working hard. Her devotion to her duty to God and to Naomi was more important to her than appearance. She was willing to work hard in the hot fields all day long, in the evening, grind, grinding grain and removing the chaff and then go home and prepare dinner at night. Ruth was willing to do what was needed in order to be done, regardless of the difficulty of the labor. But you have to remember that it was the change of heart from Yahweh that instilled that kind of industrious devotion. She was a very hard worker. Fourthly, Ruth had not acted immorally. That's such a key thing here. Ruth could have pursued younger men, whether poor or rich. But as Boaz observes in verse 10, she chose to fulfill the Leverite law of the kinsman redeemer on behalf of her former husband's family. Boaz was not a handsome young prince. He was an older man, but with identical godly character. To Ruth's. They had the same heart for Yahweh. He worked in the fields just as she did. So Ruth was not the type of young woman who was boy crazy. She had one focus, and that was being a slave to Yahweh. She didn't chase boys. All of her actions were governed by what would bring the most honor and glory in her worship of Yahweh. In the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul writes, he says, for this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is in idolatry has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Boaz saw Ruth as a woman of righteous aspirations and pure in her thinking and actions. There's a fifth thing. Ruth also had not remarried outside of the family. It was conceivable that Ruth could have married outside of the family, that is, Elimelech Malone family. 
There's nothing in the law that would have forbidden her from marrying a man who was not related to Naomi or Boaz. However, there was one thing that prevented this from happening. It was her own conscience. She had made a vow to Naomi back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, not to leave her side. She even vowed to die with her. She would have to break her word to Naomi if she married outside of the Elimelech Malone family. Her great-grandson would later, great-great-grandson, I should say, Solomon would later explain, it is better for you that you not vow than that you should vow and not pay, Ecclesiastes 5.5. So the words of Yahweh through his servant Moses warned in Numbers 30 and verse 2, if a man makes a vow to Yahweh or swears an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate that word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So you get the idea and how seriously Ruth now took her vow that she made to Naomi. Now, what are we saying here? Ruth's words are as good as gold. What she promised Naomi, she intended to fulfill or die doing so. The old saying is true. People with good intentions make promises. People with good character keep them. The great Puritan author, Thomas Brooks, has written, Satan promises the best, but pays the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure, pays with pain. He promises profit, pays with loss. He promises life, pays with death. But God pays as he promises. All his payments are made in pure gold. End of quote. When you make a promise and you do not keep it, you're acting more like Satan than like God. Ruth was resolute in keeping the promise that she made to Naomi. Resolute. Number six, Ruth was appealing to him in accordance with the Leverite law. This is key. In fact, look at verse 10 when it says, Boaz responds to her and says, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter, you have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first. What is he referring to? The first loving kindness was a reference to Naomi on how she had been faithful. In fact, this is that Old Testament word that's translated often grace here, chesed. It's that Hebrew word chesed has translated grace sometimes or loving kindness. Her, his, her first loving kindness was to Naomi, but the second is to Boaz. Why? Because he's an older guy. He's not a young prince. And she basically, by laying in his feet, is promising her allegiance to him. And he knows now, after the way in which she treated her mother-in-law, that she would keep her word. He knows it. So it is a shadow of your greater spiritual redemption in Christ here. Completely unmerited and undeserved. So Ruth was at the mercy of Boaz. Her life stood in the balance here. Was Boaz willing to stand by the law of the kinsman redeemer or would he abandon the responsibility? This brings us to verse 11. Look at verse 11. So now my daughter, do not fear all that you say I will do for you for all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Verse 11 answers all of Ruth's fears. This verse is the turning point of the whole book, 
right here. Here's the turning point. It's the hinge on which everything hangs. Boaz goes out of his way to let her know without a doubt that he will gladly be her kinsman redeemer. And the main reason that he gives is her excellence in character and virtue. She was a standout, not in her looks, but in her spiritual qualities. He knew a woman like Ruth was rare, and she had caught his attention not through her sexuality, but through her spirituality. Finally, number seven, Ruth humbly placed herself in a vulnerable position to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. So in verse 11, Boaz now says, so now my daughter, do not fear. He knows that what she has done is bold and risky. Maybe he could see the fear in her eyes or he could hear it in her voice. But he tells her, there's no reason to fear. She has done the right thing and he's willing to agree to her proposal. Can you imagine the huge relief that must have come over her when she heard those words? I'm sure she was overjoyed. She no longer had to be sheepishly unsure. Everything hung in the balance until now. Her heart is racing. She has fulfilled the Leverite law of redemption. She has perfectly fulfilled the commandments of her mother-in-law, and now she sees the blessing. Boaz's willingness to take on the responsibility was now welcomed and was reassuring news. Listen, like Adam, Boaz is the only other man in Scripture who... Goes to bed single and wakes up married. (laughs) There was one obstacle that needed to be overcome. And this turns our attention to verses 12 and 13. Knowing that Ruth wanted to carefully follow the law of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz had to inform her that someone else stood in line who was a closer relative than he was. Which brings us to Ruth's stay. Look at verse 11 where it says, or verse 12, but now it is true that I am kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. And then verse 13 says, stay this night and it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So, Boaz tells her to stay the rest of the night there. Now, I doubt that Ruth went back to sleep. Her mind is probably running wild with the idea that she was going to be a wife again. Um, But she needed to wait until morning. Why? Verse 12 gives us the answer. Because there's somebody unexpected that comes into the picture here. Just like Ruth wanted to make sure that she was doing everything in accordance with the law, Boaz has that same desire. That's why he informs her that there's a closer relative in line to be a kinsman redeemer. And he's got to go consult him first. Neither Naomi nor Ruth knew about this close relative. Ruth had upheld the law. Now it's time for Boaz to do the same. He could have easily decided to sidestep this person, but he knew that would not be the right thing to do. So who is this unexpected relative? Well, we can't say for sure, but we know that 
it was someone closer to Elimelech than Boaz was. He could have been Boaz's much older brother. That's hinted at in chapter 4 and verse 3, when Boaz makes the statement there in the gates of the city, so I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, saying, acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of the people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, redeems it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And after that, and after I am at, or and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So um, the idea is that this could be his older brother, or maybe even a cousin, cousin. But it's also interesting to note that later on in chapter 4 and verse 17, when Ruth gives birth to her firstborn, the, the women of the city name him Obed. A son has been born, they say, not to Ruth, but to Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi. That's interesting. So would suggest a brother or a cousin relationship to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. In this case, verse 13, then there's this solemn utterance. After Ruth now learns this, that there's another closer relative, she may have been disappointed that Boaz may not end up being her husband. She knew Boaz. Uh, He had been very kind to her, and this news could have been very disappointing to her. Uh, But she did not know this other relative. What if this man was unkind? What if he hated Moabite women? The other man could marry her and treat her with disrespect like a rejected slave. She knew Boaz would not do that. And Boaz anticipates this. That's the reason why he says what he says in verse 13. He says to Ruth, I I will not waste any time. First thing in the morning, I am going to go to the gate of the city, which is exactly what he does in chapter 4 and verse 1. That's where all kinds of legal matters were handled by the elders of the city at that time. He, he says, I'm going to go there and handle this matter. This was the place where all the legal transactions take place, where judgments were passed down from the elders of the city. The elders were the witnesses of a transaction or a business deal. Then Boaz tells her that if the close relative is not willing to be her kinsman redeemer, I will redeem you. But he adds this most sacred vow This is the most solemn, binding oath and statement a Hebrew man can make. I will redeem you, he says, as Yahweh lives. Wow. That's when hope floods Ruth's heart. As Yahweh lives. Then he tells her to lie down until morning. He didn't tell her she had to go to sleep because he knew she would probably not be able to do so. But he wanted her to rest, just rest and trust the Lord. There was nothing more she could do. It is all in God's hands now. Trust is an important thing, isn't it? Even in your life and my life. A little boy walked down the beach one day, and as he did, he spied a rather matronly looking lady sitting under a beach umbrella on the sand. And he walked up to her and he said, are you a Christian? The lady said, yes. Do you read your Bible every day? 
She nodded, yes. Do you pray often? She answered, yes. And with that, he asked one final question. Will you hold my quarter while I go swimming? (laughs) Trust. Trust. Ruth was a very trustworthy woman, but her God was even more trustworthy. Martin Luther once remarked, I have had many things in my hands and lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I've always possessed. That's true for you and for me. I have sad news. I'll probably not see most of you for a whole month, but I'll see you back on August 7th. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you today for the wonderful story of Ruth, Boaz. Father, what you're doing in terms of the redemptive story, if we're following this hermeneutically, we're not talking about Christocentric hermeneutics. We're talking about Christotelic. This is a story that telically points to you, to your son, the coming of your son, through a little pagan Moabite girl by the name of Ruth. Father, her faith in you, her trust in you, and the way in which you bless her life, may we emulate that as well. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.